Good, so we are following on our series in the book of Galatians, and this is the third week, as you'll be well aware, that I've been preaching. Next week, Steve is taking over, taking on the baton from me, and uh, we look forward to that, and I do encourage you to pray for Steve during the week. Last week, I covered chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and it's actually the second part of chapter 1, verses 11 to 24 of chapter 1. And last week, we looked at Paul the Apostle speaking at great length, it must be said, about his calling and defending his calling in the face of opposition and those who said that he was a bogus, fake apostle and that he had messed up somehow the message of the gospel and that he was not to be trusted and that people had better listen to them. The circumcision group, the Judaizers, those who came and said, well, you know, actually, faith in Jesus Christ is not enough to save a person. That's, that's fine as, as well as it goes, as far as it goes. But what's more important is that you follow some of these Jewish customs and traditions, parts of the ceremonial law. That's essential if you want to be a true Christian. And Paul was aghast. Paul was absolutely adamant that he had the true gospel, that Christ himself had commissioned him to preach. You might think when Paul talks about his testimony that he's a kind of, you know, like an egocentric type of person. You know, somebody, somebody, gets, um, somebody dares to challenge their authority. They get all kind of defensive and go on and on and on trying to defend themselves. Was Paul like that? No, he wasn't. Paul knew that if these people managed to discredit him and his calling, they could also discredit his message as well. And what we saw last week was a battle for hearts and minds. Paul was striving with the people to believe him, trying to persuade them by giving them all kinds of evidence that he was a true apostle, no less an apostle than those 12 Jerusalem apostles, and that his message and his calling was given by Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And remember last week, I talked about the kind of evidence that Paul mustered in his defense. So he said, first of all, this message I got did not come from any man. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And he says, you know, he he points to the fact that he hadn't hadn't had any kind of encounters at all with the Jerusalem apostles, apart from a brief visit for 14 days or 15 days, and then 14 years later, a kind of flying visit to Jerusalem. So nobody could say that he'd gone there and received his message from these Jerusalem apostles. He's kind of pointing to the fact that nobody gave it to him. He received it by God, by Jesus Christ. And he also points to the fact that he was, as I said last week, a zealous, religious, fanatical Jew. And he was indeed the least likely candidate to be a Christian and an apostle. You know, he was absolutely fanatical about those Jewish traditions. And if anyone had stood up for them, it would have been Paul. And he says, well, look at me. If I, if me, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees, have turned away from this and put up my trust in Jesus Christ and am preaching salvation by faith through grace, through the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ, if I am doing this, then you ought to listen to me because what human effort, what human argument could have changed a person like me and made me into an apostle who now preaches this free grace and has dispensed with all these Jewish traditions? So I wanted to to remind you last week that the apostles still have a job to do. It's very important that we trust the apostle Paul and believe that God called him and gave him this message because so much of the Bible was written by Paul. God used him, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this message. And this is constantly under attack. And we need to be sure that this word is just as much the word of God as anything that Jesus said. The Holy Spirit has inspired this, inspired these men, and they speak to us today. Now, today we're looking at chapter 2, verses 11 
2.21. And actually, I'll be honest, some of this I wrote on a sick bag in an aeroplane flying over Poland somewhere when I last came back from Ukraine. So I was sitting there in the plane, and I, a wave of inspiration came over me. It was a pretty tedious journey, and I scribbled down loads of notes. And then we went for a patch of turbulence, and um, I rather wished I'd kept the bag for its... <laughs> But I didn't, I kept it and took the notes home and sort of scribbled them all up. So today we read about an incident in Antioch. Verse 11. Peter was in Antioch and he was spending some time with the Christians there. So last week we looked at Paul's visit to Jerusalem. This week we're looking at Paul and Peter who happened to be in the same place in the church of Antioch. And we don't exactly know what Peter was doing there, but he was obviously spending time with the Christians. And Paul was doing the same. Presumably they were teaching, they were ministering to the saints there. And um, we read about this time when Paul had to confront Peter and oppose him publicly because of his hypocrisy and because of his sin. And we're going to look at this a little bit tonight, and we're going to unpack this a little bit. I do apologize. I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface tonight. These doctrines, these great truths, you could write books and books and books and fill libraries with these truths. And we've got got half an hour at most. But I'll do my best to give you a general overview, and hopefully you can go away and just pour over this and just imbibe the word of God because it's so, so wonderful. So Peter was in, in Antioch, Paul was in Antioch, and verse 12, before certain men came from James, he, used to, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from those, sorry, separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So Peter was enjoying good times of fellowship in the church in Antioch and he had no qualms whatsoever about eating with Christians from a Gentile non-Jewish background. Peter realized that these old covenant markers, circumcision, special days, feasts, these things had no longer, no longer had any significance for Christians. It was faith in Jesus Christ that made a person right with God. Peter was quite happy to meet with these brothers and sisters and to eat with them. Now, when it says he ate with them, that probably means that they had the Lord's Supper together. They shared communion together, which is what we're going to do tonight. And I want to remind you that in the early church, communion, the Lord's Supper, was a very, very central and key part of church life. You know, it wasn't a kind of peripheral thing. It wasn't an optional extra, as some people today seem to think it is. It was absolutely key. And if you were excluded from communion for some reason but you know you you were living in sin it was a very very serious thing and you would grieve and you would be troubled because you had to miss communion peter had communion he shared communion with these these brothers and sisters in antioch these gentiles and also they had things which which they called love feasts as well they had special meals together i think that the, the equivalent we have is kind of church lunches once a month you get together and you share fellowship together and you share food together And in those days, even more than today, eating together with somebody was a sign that you had unity with them, that you shared fellowship with them, especially in the church. So Peter was having the Lord's Supper. He was sharing meals with these people, these love feasts, and he had no qualms about doing it with Gentiles and Jews alike. But then in verse 12, certain men came from James in Jerusalem. Now, James here, this is not James and John, sons of Zebedee. This is James, probably James, the Lord's brother, one of those people that Paul refers to as pillars of the church in Jerusalem, a prominent leader. And some men came from Jerusalem to Antioch and said, we're from James. They weren't authorized. They weren't really from James, but they claimed to be from him. And these were these 
nasty kind of circumcision people who were coming to try and bring their false doctrine into the church in Antioch. They had an agenda. Whether it was motivated by Jewish prejudices, a kind of sort of nationalism, whether it was a misguided theological conviction, whether it was simply fear of the Jews that caused them to act in this way, we don't know. But the Judaizers came and they were trying to impose their agenda on this young church in Antioch. Now, Peter, that prominent apostle, he should have seen this for what it was and said, this is a disgrace, and he should have stood against these men. But Peter, very sadly, allowed himself to be influenced by them. And it says here, he began to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to that group. Now, I want you to remember that Peter actually had a very special revelation from the Lord about the inclusion of Gentiles into God's kingdom. You remember the time when he went to visit Cornelius and God gave him that wonderful vision of the animals being lowered down in the sheep. And God says to him, basically, I'm paraphrasing this, don't call anything unclean that I call clean. And God was showing him, or the Lord was showing him, that he was including the Gentiles by faith in Jesus Christ in the covenant, in the people of God. To Peter, of all people, he should have known, he should have understood that Gentiles were just as much included by faith in Jesus Christ. And last week we read that Peter had affirmed Paul's calling and Paul's gospel. He gave him the right hand of fellowship in Jerusalem. They agreed they were preaching the same gospel, that Paul should go to the Gentiles and Peter should go to the Jews. But they had unity, absolute unity in the gospel, in their profession. You can see how much they wrestled with this issue, can't you? It was a big issue in the life of the church. It was difficult to kind of shake off those Jewish prejudices and those... those this idea that they were somehow a special people because they had these kind of covenant markers of circumcision which included them in God's people as they saw it. Now Peter, Peter, dear old Peter, had a history, didn't he, of being afraid of people. So even though he was a prominent apostle, he was the man who walked with Jesus, who was there in those dark times, and those good times of Jesus' ministry. Peter, remember that time when he was afraid and denied Jesus, denied knowing him. And although Peter was used of Christ mightily for his kingdom, he was still a work in progress. You know, Paul said, didn't he, at the beginning of, of at the end of chapter one, or halfway through chapter one, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says it's impossible to be a servant of Christ and still try to please people. We have to, as I said before, we have to decide whom we're going to serve, who we're going to please. Are we more concerned about serving God and pleasing God? Are we more concerned about the, the opinions of ungodly people and winning their approval? But Peter was still a work in progress. He was still afraid. He was afraid of this group. We don't know why he was afraid. Perhaps they would take a bad report back to Jerusalem about him. Perhaps it would cause trouble among the Jews. But for whatever reason, he was cowardly. And he began to withdraw and stop eating with these Gentile brothers and sisters. Now look at verse 13. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So Peter's hypocrisy affected not just himself, but it affected other people as well. Being such an influential figure, others looked at him and took examples from him. Now, Peter didn't really believe that circumcision was necessary for people to be saved. That's what made it even worse. He hadn't changed his heart. He hadn't said, oh, I was wrong all along. I was preaching this free grace. Now I need to go back to the Jewish ways. He knew very well that a person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by simply believing and calling upon him. 
And yet Peter acted in a way which gave the impression to everybody that somehow these Jewish, these Gentile Christians were not really Christians because they hadn't been circumcised. He didn't believe it, but that's how he acted. And people were troubled and confused by this. And other people in the church, other Christians there, saw Peter, other Jews there, and they started to do what he did, started to turn away from these Gentiles, these dear people that Christ had died for and accepted by faith, by grace. The worst thing was that Peter himself didn't live like a Jew. Peter had stopped doing the things that Jewish people, faithful Jewish people would have done under Judaism. Peter had probably ate non-kosher food. Peter was happy to mix before with non-Jewish people, which no good Jew would ever have done. And Peter, how, he, how hypocritical is that? To, you know, to, to live a certain way, uh, you know, free from the law, and then try to impose that law on other people, or try to, to act as though that law was still binding on people. That's exactly what Peter was doing. I want to remind us, it's quite sobering, isn't it? Even such a prominent leader, used so mightily of God, can still be guilty of hypocrisy. The best men still you know, men with feet of clay, aren't they? The best men, even the greatest Christian leaders, are still people prone to sin, cowardice, hypocrisy, and how we need to pray for our leaders. Because their behavior has the capacity to influence people so much, for good or for worse, for ill. So even Barnabas, that faithful godly man, was led astray by Peter. What a terrible thing it is to lead others astray. Verse 14, Paul sees this and true to form, that courageous man takes action against this injustice in the church. I want to put it to you, this was not an easy thing for Paul to have done. But Paul was prepared to stand up for what was right and to stand up for the truth of the gospel and willing to be perhaps ridiculed or rejected because he believed this was important, important enough to stand up for. This is one of those kind of key battles for truth in the early church. We see this time and time again. The early church was going on a, in a good direction, and suddenly some, someone came in to try and subvert it and send it off course. And had that happened, the church today could have been taken off course because it's kind of trajectory through history. You know, time and time again, the Lord God protected his church. When these battles came up and reared their ugly head, time and time again, God quashed it, he stopped it, and he raised up faithful men to preach the truth to turn the church back to the truth so that it would not go off along a wrong path which led nowhere good. And this is one of those incidents here where if Paul had failed to win over those people, the church could have gone off in a very bad direction and disunity could have crept in. Now, I want to talk today a little bit, briefly, about dealing with conflicts in the church. And I want to look at Peter's, Paul's example and I want to take out some principles. I'm going to go quite quickly through this, but if you have any questions, come and ask me afterwards. This is not the last word in conflict resolution in the church, but I want to give you some helpful points which can help us understand how we should approach people. Do you think that Peter, Paul should have, I keep mixing those two, do you think Paul should have confronted Peter privately, or do you think he was right to do this publicly in front of everybody? Perhaps you should have taken him aside and had a quiet word and said, listen, Peter, your behavior is out of line with the truth of the gospel, that potent phrase that not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Perhaps he should have kind of called a few of the prominent people together and Barnabas and said, listen, listen, fellas, this is not going too well. What you're doing is a sin and you need to repent. But Peter, for Paul, for whatever reason, he chose to do this publicly in front of the whole assembled mass of people. 
So you can imagine the scene. I don't, don't know exactly what was happening. They put, were all eating together, sitting down to eat, and the Gentile Christians had been asked to sit somewhere else. And they were excluded from the real Christians, the Jewish Christians who'd been circumcised sitting there. You can imagine the hurt. You know, why is this man Peter suddenly rejecting us, not sitting and eating with us? Why is he giving us the cold shoulder? They were confused. They didn't know why. Perhaps we ought to get circumcised after all to be included in that holy huddle over there. Let's look at what Paul does here. I want to give you seven points which we can take from Paul, Paul's approach, to help us deal with conflict in the church in a helpful and constructive way, in a biblical way which honors Christ. The first point is this. Paul was a fellow apostle. It was his duty as an apostle to challenge people like Peter, other apostles. Many of those people in the church would have been too scared, to put it that way, to to confront Peter about this issue. But Paul was an apostle, no less, no inferior to those 12 original Jerusalem apostles. The others may not have felt comfortable doing this. Paul knew it was his duty. And sometimes good men have to stand up and speak the truth because nobody else will do it. So if we want to challenge somebody in the church, we need to challenge somebody. There may be a time for that, but we need to make sure we're very, very careful and cautious about doing it. Remembering that Paul wasn't just a person in the church, he was a fellow apostle. He had a right and a duty to do that. The second point we learn from Paul and his approach is that Paul, this issue was a serious one, not a minor one. This wasn't just about table manners. It wasn't just about you know, some kind of minor secondary issue in the life of the church. This had the potential to create great disunity and confusion about the gospel. It wasn't about a kind of petty difference of opinion. It wasn't about some kind of trifling matter. This was about the very heart of the gospel. How is a person saved and made right with God? And it could not be ignored. In fact, Luther said, this, this is not some kind of trifling minor matter. This is the main point of Christian doctrine. So if we have to confront somebody in the church, publicly perhaps, we need to ask the question, is this a serious issue? Is it worthy of bringing up publicly Or is it a minor issue which can be dealt with? Is it not even worth mentioning at all? Perhaps it's so minor, it's not even worth bringing up. The third point is this. Paul was very, very clear of his arguments. Peter was clearly in the wrong. Peter says, you know, it says here, Peter was clearly in the wrong. Paul was in no doubt whatsoever that Peter was acting in a hypocritical way. Now, we need to be careful, don't we? If there's some kind of ambiguity or some kind of, we don't exactly know the full situation, we need to be very, very circumspect, don't we? very, very cautious about dealing with things publicly. We need to make sure that this person really is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. We need to test this with the word of God. We need to perhaps need to talk to other people about this to make sure we're not mistaken. Paul was clear. He knew this was a black and white issue and it had to be dealt with. Point number four about dealing with conflict, dealing with um, division and hypocrisy publicly. The issue was leading other people astray. Now, I mentioned this already but Barnabas and all the others were led astray by Peter's behavior. Somebody once said this, you know, the, the sins of teachers are the teachers of sins. So as I said, you know, an influential person who sins and leads other people astray is actually a real danger in the life of the church. And that person, for their own good and for the good of the church, may need to be dealt with in a loving but bold way to try to bring about some kind of return to walking in the truth of the gospel. This shows what a heavy responsibility it is to be a leader. When we go astray, 
I say we, I'm not a leader, but if you know, we, in a sense we're all leaders, but those who have a particular teaching ministry, if they go astray, others will follow. Satan knew, didn't he, that if he could make Peter take a wrong path, others would follow as well. Now, Peter, Paul could have gone to Peter and he could have had a private conversation and discussion about this issue and Peter may have repented and gone back to eating with the Gentile brothers and sisters again. But that would have been confusing. Nobody would have really known what Peter was doing. You know, he was acting one way one day and another, another way another day. It would have been really confusing and bewildering for them. You know, confusion, an atmosphere of confusion is a fertile ground for false teaching. And what Paul was doing here is he wanted to make a very, very clear distinction to stand up and tell everybody why this was wrong so that everybody would know, so that Gentile believers could be affirmed again that they were indeed included in the covenant people of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And there had to be unity, a visible show of unity amongst the apostles. The truth of the gospel had to be contended for again. Otherwise, people might have ended up with two different gospels, the gospel of Peter and the gospel of Paul. Well, Peter, kind of obviously by his behavior, is saying that he believes in circumcision. That's necessary. But Paul was teaching, you don't need circumcision. Who do we believe? Confusion, it's not good. Peter, Paul had to stand up there and make a clear sign and say, this is wrong, so that everybody would know. So number four, he was leading others astray. And if somebody, some issue in the church is leading other people astray, then it perhaps needs to be confronted publicly. You know, Paul loved Peter, but he loved the church as well. He loved the church so much. He wasn't trying to humiliate Peter, but he, he knew the church had to be protected. Which brings me to point five. Peter, Paul did not humiliate Peter. He didn't single him out. Now, Peter was the ringleader. He was the apostle. But all the others there, most of the others, had, had also followed him in his hypocrisy as well. They were also to blame. So Paul doesn't kind of say, Peter... Stand up and humiliate him and kind of, you know, disgrace him. All the others were equally as guilty. They, they bore kind of collective guilt in this. So I don't want you to think here that, that Paul is kind of, you know, disgracing Peter and just trying to humiliate him. He doesn't single him out. He actually speaks to the whole lot of them. But Peter was even more culpable being the apostle. Point number six, Paul is not harsh with Peter. In fact, he only asks a question. He asks a question. He's measured and self-controlled when he confronts him. He doesn't launch a kind of tirade. He doesn't go into a rant. He's not like, you know, like a dam waiting to burst. You know, people have got a chip on their shoulder or kind of got a grudge. They kind of build it up and build it up. I've done it myself. And then one day it just bursts in this kind of outburst of this, you know, anger and this frustration. But Peter, Paul's not like that. Paul is calm. He's measured. He's wise. He's not trying to destroy Peter. He's not trying to ruin his, his um, reputation. He doesn't call him accursed. If Peter had been preaching a false gospel, he would have called him accursed, no doubt. But Peter's not preaching a false gospel. Peter knows and believes the true gospel. That's what makes it even worse, is that he's just not acting in line with the truth of that gospel. And Paul is, is gentle with him. He asks him a question. He exposes the hypocrisy. It must have been a shock to the circumcision group. He says, he says to Peter, you, you, you're a Jew. You don't live like a Jew. Those people probably were shocked to find out that Peter didn't live like a Jew. But Paul didn't care what they thought. He had to contend for those people that were being led astray. Point number seven. Paul backs up his argument with well-reasoned scriptural logic, which we're going to look at in a minute. 
He's crystal clear about the issues at stake. It's not just human opinions. Paul uses scripture to make a logical case for his convictions, for his challenging of of, um, Peter. Now, as I said, there may be a time to draw public attention to sin in the life of the church, but it should be done graciously, wisely, and with the good of the church in mind. We need to ask these kind of questions that Paul would have asked. Is it a sufficiently serious issue to raise publicly? Can it be dealt with in a better way? Are we doing it in a loving way? Are we spiteful and vindictive? Are we absolutely sure of our case? Maybe we need to step back and think about it and pray about it a bit more. Can we back it up with scripture? Or is it just our own kind of human opinions? And are we concerned for the well-being of the church? Now, we could say a lot more about this, and I don't want anybody to go away if we can just kind of launch attacks on people. That's not what this is about. But there are times when the issues are so important, this is the only way, the best way of dealing with these problems. Now, I want you to look at verse 15 onwards. Now, many people believe this is part of the quotation. This is Paul continuing to talk to Peter. I always assume that the, the quotation finished at verse 14. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The question that Paul asked Peter. But actually this part is also probably part of Paul's argument as well. And I, I've got time only to kind of skip over this tonight. Okay? And perhaps Steve will elaborate more in weeks to come. Verse 15. We, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. This is the first use of the word justified in the book of Galatians. Now, basically, I'm sure you know that the word justified has legal connotations. It's a word which is taken from the courtroom. It's the act of a judge pronouncing a person not guilty, acquitting a person. And in in scriptural terms, it's used to mean the, the way that God takes a guilty person and declares them righteous before him. In essence, it's it's about how a person is made right with God, how a person is is included in the covenant people of God. I'm sure Steve will talk about this in weeks to come. But the Jews prided themselves on being God's covenant people. Theirs was the promises, theirs were the prophets, theirs were the commandments, theirs was the law. Theirs were the rites of circumcision which marked them off as God's holy people. Unlike the Gentile sinners who were excluded and cut off from the people of God. And that's why Paul says here, he talks about Gentile sinners. We who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. That's how a good Jew would, refer, would have referred to non-believers as Gentile sinners, those dogs, those scum of the earth, those people that have no right to enter God's kingdom. Look at this in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth, Peter, Paul, and all the rest, know that a man is is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So at one time, all these men had prided themselves on their Jewishness and their law and their covenants and circumcision, and yet they had come to realize that none of these things could save them. In fact, Paul says here, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. 
Paul has come to realize that not, no person can be saved by keeping God's law. No person can be saved by their own works. No person can be saved by being good enough. No person can be saved by circumcision, but simply by faith in Jesus Christ and believing what he did, dying on the cross for sins of people. Peter knew this as well. Peter knew this full well. He'd rejected his, his trust in the Jewish way of life, the Jewish religion. So why was he forcing these people to go back to the law? Verse 17 to 19. Now this is a bit more problematic to understand. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I reveal what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, there are many, many interpretations of this verse. and I don't think any of us can be 100% sure what Paul was talking about when he said this. But I'm going to give you one interpretation tonight, which I think fits the bill. And let's see how we get on with this. So when Paul says, if we, we seek to become justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? So what's he talking about in this verse? Well, you can imagine some of these Judaizers saying to Paul, saying about Paul, Paul is actually an antinomian. He doesn't believe in the Jewish law, and believing in Jesus Christ and believing in Paul's gospel will, t- will turn people away from following the Jewish law and circumcision and the food laws and the rituals and that's actually a disgrace because these things are so important in their opinion. And actually, they were saying, your Jesus makes people sinners because he's, this Jesus, faith in this Jesus is making people turn away from all these things which are so precious for our people, which we regard as being so important for a person to be included in God's covenant people. Does that mean that Christ is an agent of sin? Well, Paul is emphatic, absolutely not. Why? Because these things that Christians were doing were not sinful things at all. You know, dispensing with these food laws in order to love Gentile Christians and have fellowship with them, that was not a sin. Giving up circumcision, trusting in the law, and trusting all, the, all these rituals to save yourself. Giving up those things was not a sin. No, these things were obsolete. These things were surpassed by Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ is not an agent of sin. He's an agent of freedom. So the fact that these people were not observing the Jewish dietary laws or circumcision does not mean they were sinners. Actually, they were liberated from the bondage of these things. Verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Paul had absolutely torn down by his teaching the idea that the law could justify and make a person right with God. He had destroyed that by preaching grace, preaching salvation through faith. But he's saying here, you know, if he tried, tried to rebuild that again, as Peter had done almost, by trying to insist that people were circumcised, going back to the law as a means of being right with God, actually that's what makes somebody a sinner. This audacious and disgraceful idea that somebody can be saved by their own works, by their own efforts, by obeying the law, rather than by the grace of God. It was always by grace, even right back to the beginning. Peter was guilty of giving this impression to people. That's what proves you to be a lawbreaker, is that you go back to legalism. Now look at verse 19. Through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. 
What does Paul mean by this? The law itself showed that nobody could ever be saved by it. Paul had died to the law as a means of earning salvation. He didn't trust in that anymore to save him. That does not now mean that he can live how he likes. The Christian may be freed from the law, but it does not mean we can just live any old way. The law still has a place. I might live for God. I want you to consider that. I might live for God. That suggests to me that before that, when Paul was trying to earn his own salvation, earn his own own way to heaven by his law-keeping, that he wasn't really living for God at all. He started living for God when he dispensed, he turned away from any trust in his own efforts and simply believed in Jesus Christ. He died to the law that day as a means of salvation. But I want you to remember this, an important principle, that freedom from the law is not lawlessness. Because the Christian who's been freed from the legal bondage of trying to keep the law, which we can never keep, which can never save anybody, that Christian now lives for God because something has changed within that person. And Paul himself actually uses the law to correct and teach the Christians. So Ephesians 6 says this, children, Lilia, are you listening? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Look at that face. This is the first commandment with a promise. Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments to make a point about Christian living. So he still uses the law. He hasn't dispensed with it as a moral guidance tool. The law still tells us about God's principles and God's ways. He hadn't died to the law in that respect. He loved the law, but he was not relying on it, trusting in it to save him anymore. He was trusting in Jesus Christ. So it's not wrong to say to Christians, we we ought to live a certain way. It's not wrong to say to Christians, we ought to be at communion. It's not wrong to say to Christians, we ought to to, um, not get drunk. It's not wrong to say to Christians, we ought to do many things. We ought to. We're calling each other, exhorting each other. Brothers and sisters, we've been saved by grace. Now we live for God. Let's live a certain way. Let's live in a way which pleases God from the heart, not just because we're trying externally to please God, actually because we actually love ourselves, because we truly love God. So it is right to exhort one another, using the law, using the word of God, to say we ought to live like this as Christians. But we're not saying this to people because they can be saved like this. That's the difference. We are saved. Let's live up to our high calling, if that makes sense. Wow, time does fly, doesn't it? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So before we were Christians, we'd broken God's law. We were guilty. We faced the wrath of God, condemnation. We were ruined by sin. We were enslaved by sin. And the wages of sin is death. So every sinner can look forward to death and punishment and judgment of God. But when a penalty has been paid, there's no longer any price to be paid. So I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. If God, God is just, God must punish me. God must kill me and punish me. God so loved us that he made a way, this wise and wonderful gospel, that somehow that penalty of mine could be taken by Jesus Christ. That when God looks at me, or looks at you if you're a Christian, he looks at us as though that penalty has been paid, so that we don't have to die. It won't be the end for us. Now we could, we could talk for hours and hours, could we, about this idea about being crucified with Christ. Somehow when Jesus died on the cross, the Christian was included in Christ. Somehow when Christ died on the cross, we, in a sense, died with him. And our condemnation, the death that we deserve, was borne by Christ. 
The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've died with Christ as Christians. We haven't physically died, but we have spiritually died. We've been included with him when he died on the cross. We've been raised to a new life. There's no longer any guilt, no efforts to earn salvation, no more being enslaved by sin. We live by faith in the Son of God. And that is how the Christian lives, in response to his love. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How personal is that? He loved me and gave himself for me. And that is the motivation for the Christian life. Not law-keeping, not legalism, not trying to earn God's favor. It's saying he died for me, he loved me, and he loves me. And he gave himself on the cross for me. And therefore, I want to give him my all. I want to live for him because I love him. Because he's done so much for me. I could never repay that debt, but I owe him my all. I want to live every day of my life for his glory, for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a Christian, you can say that he loved me and gave himself for me as well. Paul says this, he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. That doesn't mean like, you know, some of those alien films where kind of, you know, creatures from outer space take over a human body, somehow inhabit it, and it's not actually the person living in it, you know, the aliens in there. It's not talking about that. Christ somehow dwells in a believer through the Holy Spirit. And the believer is deeply changed, radically and permanently changed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, I no longer live. He was still Paul. It wasn't Saul of Tarsus, but he was still the same human being. And yet he no longer recognized his old self. He was mastered by Christ. He was united with Christ. The work of Christ was inside of him, working by the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful thing that was. Now, I've just scratched the surface. I meant to say a lot more, but look at verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Turning back to the law, turning back to legalism, turning back to circumcision, sets aside the grace of God. If there were another way for people to be saved, if keeping the law could have saved people, there would have been no need for Christ to come and die on the cross as an atoning sacrifice. We could not save ourselves. That's why Christ came. That's why the cross is so important. And that is why we must magnify the cross. And that's why as a church we must always preach the cross because it's the most glorious doctrine. And it's what saves people. It's the only way people can be saved. So after all this, I mean, we could say a lot more. There's no record of Peter's response. We don't know whether he was humiliated or whether he went red or whether he kind of apologized and broke down in tears. We may suppose he repented. If you look at Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, Peter was the first to stand up for this doctrine, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul's boldness, Paul's courage saved the day, saved the church from confusion and disunity. I'm sure Peter would have been grateful for the challenge. You know, if a godly person has challenged you when you've been in sin, ultimately you'll look back and be grateful to that person that you love me enough to tell me the truth. You didn't just kind of let me go in my way, causing all kinds of problems. Brief conclusion. In our culture, none of us is likely to impose the law on other Christians. We don't believe in circumcision. It's not prominent in our society. No one does this, apart from, you know, imagine Orthodox Jews. But we need to be careful, don't we, that we don't make human works part of what we believe makes us right with God. I want to give a warning to our church that other churches around us become increasingly liberal. And the danger is that we as Christians start to become very defensive. We sort of hunker down and we get very kind of, you know, 
we are a bastion of truth. We are, we are a gospel church. It's right that we should be a gospel church. It's good to have high standards. And I want our church to be a church of the very highest standards. Because our God deserves nothing less. But we do need to be careful, don't we? We avoid pride. We need to make sure we don't start making these kind of these commands of God into a law that must be obeyed, otherwise you're not a true Christian. Absolutely right that we call people to obey God if they're Christians. But we need to make that very fine distinction. With, this is not how you are made right with God by obeying the law and by obeying God's commands, by going to church, by praying. You're made right with God. You're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, by his work alone. You just simply accept that by faith. Some churches are legalistic. I've been in legalistic churches. Anya's been in legalistic churches. And a legalistic church is not a church which stands up for the gospel and for the Bible. A legalistic church is when they start making secondary issues into vitally important covenant markers, subcultures. So I've been in churches where you know have a certain mode of dress, um, suits for the men, women with their little headscarves. I'm talking about Ukraine. Um, I've not come across too many churches like that in this country. Not all churches in Ukraine, very, very few are like that. But some of them, they're absolutely killers of churches. You go there, there's no grace whatsoever. It's all about, you know, very stern. These people will reject you. They, pretty, they wouldn't like the way I'm dressed now. They wouldn't like the fact that I've got, you know, my, my hair's a certain way or whatever it might be. That is legalism. Where you start to reject genuine Christians because they don't fit into your idea of what makes a Christian. Now, it's good to discuss these things, how we dress. It's good to discuss modes of worship, secondary matters. But listen... It's very important that we don't start becoming, setting these kind of covenant markers and you know, these kind of external things and making them into what excludes people from the church and what includes people, if that makes sense. So it might be, you know, mode of dress, Bible versions we use, style of music, views on spiritual gifts. All these issues are important. Let's discuss them. Let's pray about them. Let's seek God's will. But let's not make sure, let's make sure these things don't become a kind of, you know, marker, the in-crowd the out, you know, do you believe, are you part of a kind of little huddle in the middle or are you on the outside? We don't want any elitism and pride in our churches. And for us as a reformed church, it might be our, our knowledge of the Bible and our kind of faithfulness to the word of God. That might be the issue that causes us pride and elitism. We look down on genuine Christians because we feel they're not as faithful to the word of God as we are. Now, if somebody is twisting the word of God, it's right that we call, call them out on that. It's right that we call, say this is not right. We need to be very careful, don't we? We don't, we don't kind of get, you know, we're so, we're so spiritual because we know the word of God. That's not what saves us. Beware of performance-based Christianity. I've told you my testimony. That first winter I was in Ukraine, I was absolutely miserable and depressed because I'd picked up this idea that somehow my performance was what included me in God's kingdom, kept me in God's kingdom. So I had this idea that somehow if I didn't, work hard enough and do enough and obey God enough that somehow God would kick me out and that on the day of judgment God would say he didn't know me because I hadn't worked hard enough or done enough or loved people enough or served him enough I genuinely wanted to please God somehow I'd fallen away from grace I was adding something to the gospel my performance to keep me in the kingdom You know, let's, let's get rid of this idea that somehow if we don't understand something or we don't work hard enough, God will, will be angry with us somehow, displeased with us. Of course we want to please God. And of course when we sin as Christians, God, God is grieved by that. 
you know what? It was absolute bondage for me because I felt I could never, ever be good enough. You work, you work, you work, you try your best, you end up just giving up because you feel you can't make it. Of course, you can't make it, can you? None of us is good enough. That's why it's grace. You know, that day, I'll tell you the testimony of that day, when, when I finally realized, it wasn't one day, it was a process when I realized that salvation is by grace alone. I knew that, but it came to me like, like the spring after the winter, literal and metaphorical spring. The sun came out, sort of chains fell away. Freedom, the glorious freedom of grace. I'm accepted and loved by God. He has chosen me, that he will finish the good work he started in me. He gave his son for me. I'm born again. I'm a new creation. I've been crucified with Christ. And one who's, one who's been crucified with Christ cannot die again. That's it. It's permanent, irrevocable, and wonderful. And that is true of any true Christian. God does not accept us based on our efforts or our performance. He accepts us on the merits of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Let's be careful we don't go back to a kind of law, law-keeping and imposing it on other people. Look to the cross of Christ. Look to his grace. And that is the motivation for the Christian life. Love, I want to live for him because he's, he's loved me so much. Saved a sinner like me. Let's pray and let's finish.